Father God, thank you for such a beautiful morning. Thank you for uh, the food we've had and, we're, and the joyful faces and the friendship. We ask you humbly, Lord, to forgive us our sins and to wash us clean in the blood of Christ. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and anoint me to speak and Joan as well. And Lord, be in all of our discussion and deliberations that our words would be pleasing in your sight, that, Lord, we would give you glory. We are here, Lord, for that purpose, uh, to live for you. And we ask that your love would just pour through today. We ask these mercies in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, what is God doing, you know, in the history of the world? How is he making things happen, and how are we caught up in that? Are we caught up in what God is doing in the world? And so just in a, a few quick moments, let me give you the history of the world, all right? First of all, we have creation, amen? amen. And in the creation, God creates human beings in his image, uh, male and female, he creates them. And so we start basically in the history of the world with the unity of the human race, all right? He divides us according to gender, but we are both unified in the image of God. So men are better than women. No, we are both created in the image of God. And uh, we both have access to the Lord. We have a relationship to God. But then sin enters the picture. And immediately upon sin entering the picture, we have division. And so even in the garden, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, the Father comes down, God comes down, He met uh, Adam every day. And, uh, but Adam was hiding and uh, the father seeks him, and he said, why were you hiding? And he says he was ashamed. Why did you feel ashamed? Did you eat from the tree? Yes. And he said, the woman. And ever since then, men have been blaming women. And uh, I'm so glad I have a wife. I have someone to blame things on. Uh, where are my keys? Where is it, you know, what did you do with them? And so forth. Um, that division begins, and uh, in the first chapters of Genesis, we see the human race struggling in this division. Cain and Abel, Cain kills his own brother right in the very second generation of the human race, and there's violence upon the earth, and God brings judgment through Noah, and after the flood recedes, God tells them they are to be dispersed throughout the earth, but they stay together. And they try to maintain a unity that is no longer built on a relationship with God, but now as an idolatry. And so they build a tower to make a name for themselves. And they are resisting God as he's trying to get them dispersed. They are staying together in rebellion against God. And God comes down and he sees them building a name for themselves. And he says, if they stay together, nothing will be impossible for them. Now, that's a quite a statement from God about humanity. That we have this amazing ability to do all kinds of things. And God, now I just like you to see this God in His mercy separates us from each other. Because sinful unity is not a good thing. 
for humankind to stay together apart from a relationship to God is competition with God. God will not have that. So God divides us at the Tower of Babel and we speak different tongues. And from that point on, the human race is divided. And not only is it divided, but now one group becomes antagonistic to the other. One group feels it's superior to the other. One group develops at a different rate than the other. One group becomes technologically advanced and they begin to oppress people who don't have the same weapons and don't have the same ability of warfare and there's warfare upon the earth. And so all of this kind of stuff happens. So in the book of Genesis, uh, when we see uh, Moses coming to Egypt, we realize the the, the racism of the Egyptians uh, to the Hebrews. And and if you, you know the story of Joseph, you know that the Egyptians would not eat with the Hebrews. And they despised them because they were shepherds. And Joseph, knowing that, when he asked Pharaoh for a place for his people to come, he told them, tell Pharaoh your shepherds so that they'll give us our own piece of land apart from the Egyptians. And so you see that that kind of racism happening very early in the Bible, and there's the sense of superiority, and we're better than you. This division has been a plague upon uh, the human race ever since. And so all kinds of things happen. Uh, There are different words for it. Uh, We call it ethnocentrism, where you you build your identity around your own ethnic group. Later on in history, we come to uh, something that's invented called racism. Racism is what they call a social construct. Another, and and, and I'm, I don't have a long time to talk about that, but the whole idea of race was invented. It's not, a, it's not really a biological thing. It's not something that God gave us, but because of the ethnic differentiation, people say, you know, they came up with this idea. Oh, there are black folk, and there are white folk, and there are yellow folk, and there are brown folk, and they're in different categories. And so-called scientists looked at people and said, well, these people are more advanced than these folks, and these people have bigger craniums than these folks. You know, there was even a science to study craniums because they thought they could figure out who would be a criminal based on the side of your head, on the shape of your head. There was a whole scientific field based on this idiotic kind of science, okay? And so they invented the idea of race. Why did they do that? Well, part of it was to justify slavery. And some of the very uh, first comments about black people being born to be slaves came from Muslim scholars who looked at Genesis and the old story of um, the curse on Ham. You remember that story from the Old Testament? And what happened is people took that story, totally misinterpreted it. You know, when they said, okay, Hamites come from Africa and they're supposed to be servants. And so that means God has condemned black people to be slaves. But the curse is not on Ham. The curse is on Canaan. People who lived in the land of Canaan and the curse was on them so that when Israel came, God wanted them to bring judgment on the land of Canaan. Had nothing to do with Africans. But that verse was taken to justify slavery. And so this idea of race based on color was invented 
basically to give white folks a sense of superiority and justification that they could actually steal people. And that's what slavery is. It's man-stealing. And it's man-stealing based on race. That's the kind of, it's not biblical slavery. So if you ever read the Bible and you think, well, the Bible talks about slavery. But understand, there's a difference between American slavery and biblical slavery. American slavery was built on race, which was invented to justify oppression. And so it's really a nasty thing. But people all over the world have had various attitudes about other folk. Now, as those differences arose, we have what is called the creation of culture, okay? So culture becomes something that makes us different. Now, here in America, we are such a big country, and we are so... uh, able to speak in English most of the time, unless you live in Florida, but, you know, if, if most Americans speak English, we don't even know we have a culture. It's really interesting. You, if you, uh, Joan and I lived in Africa for a few years in Nairobi, Kenya, and so we, we, we would run into different folks who spoke various languages. We have a Kenyan daughter-in-law, and she speaks Luo, and she speaks Swahili, and she speaks English. So she's smarter than anybody else in the family. You know, she's got all of these languages. But she grew up knowing that people have different cultures. It's just when you live in Europe and you live close to border, you realize there are different languages. We Americans, we just assume we are normal. We don't think of it in terms of culture. This, this is the way normal people do things. And we, de- we decide... You're wrong because you do it differently than I do. And so we, the white culture in America, white, we are the majority. And we are the dominant culture in America. So we can go through life not even thinking that other folks do things, think things differently than we do. If you're a minority in America, you are forced to become multiple multicultural, as it were. You, you have to become bicultural. If you're a black person in America, you have to realize that's the way white folks are. So you grow up in your home, you learn certain things, but you don't always learn how to deal with other folk. And it, it, it's a handicap to, to white Americans. And sometimes it even hurts us when we go overseas. Have you ever heard the phrase, the ugly American? And, it, and it's not talking about the way we look. It's talking about the way we act. You know, we will go into somebody else's country and demand that they speak English. We will demand that they do things our way. And it's just because we have come up with a cultural value system that says this is what's normal, this is what's right, and if you do it differently, this is what's wrong. You know, the British, they don't know how to drive. They drive on the wrong side of the road. Okay. Now, what's interesting is God brings this judgment in Genesis 11 to the Tower of Babel, and he divides the world. Immediately, in Genesis chapter 12, God begins to work towards the reunification of the human race. Anybody know what happens in Genesis 12? Anybody remember? Any Bible scholars here? What? Abraham. 
God calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and he says, I'm going to make of you a father of many nations. And he, in the, and he said, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus right there from Genesis 12. So as you look at the Bible, you can begin to see a strategy that God created the human race in unity, in the image of God. Sin happened to us. Division happens. God has a plan for reunification, but that plan is being worked out in a world that is still full of division. And so, eventually, the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And when the Lord Jesus comes, he comes to the, he's Jewish, and he's born a Jew. He comes to the Jewish people. But what happened? How did the Jewish people receive him? He came unto his own, but his own received him not. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. And so the Lord Jesus came as a Jew, but he came to bring good news to all the nations. This was promised all through the Old Testament, that one day all the nations would come. And, uh, but the Jews got caught up, you see, in their own ethnocentrism. They were the chosen people. They were the circumcised, and they... Uh, Instead of seeing themselves as missionaries to the whole world, which in the Old Testament they were told to declare his glory among the nations, they didn't do that. They became self-righteous and self-focused. And they, they demanded everybody be like them. And, and they, you know, they wouldn't eat with Gentiles. They wouldn't go into their house. They despised them. They became just like the Egyptians had been to them. And Jesus comes and says, you know, I have sheep that are not of the sheepfold. And he began to project this idea that, that he was going to bring other people in. And he prayed for them and for us for unity. He said, you know, when you love one another, that lets unsaved, unbelieving people know that the Father has sent me. This is in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He, he lets them know through that prayer that the evidence that he is from the Father is when he brings unity in the church. And so after Jesus dies and comes back from the dead and ascends into heaven, uh, we have what's called the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is this great picture of how God is bringing the nations together. Um, Even in the day of Pentecost, people from all over the world hear the words of God said in their own tongue. And they begin to gather, and, and uh, you begin to see this ethnic uh, wrestling taking place. Even in chapter 6, uh, about a fight over our, which widows are being fed. The, the Hellenistic widows are being overlooked, and the Jewish widows are being given the food. And they have to come up with an ethnic solution and a Holy Ghost solution to be able to deal both with ethnic division and mercy so they can keep the gospel going. Jesus told them before he left, you shall be my witnesses. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
Woo! Jews hated Samaritans. And to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Jesus is talking about bringing this unity together again. And so all in this period, which which you might call the period of right now, uh, before Christ comes again, some people call it the period of the church, working out this unity and division has become a major challenge. But I got you, I, I got good news. The Bible tells us how it's going to end. And you look at the book of Revelation, and John says, I saw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation wearing white robes gathered around the throne, praising the Lord, praising the Lamb. We know the picture of heaven is a picture where all kinds of ethnic groups, all kinds of nations will be gathered, and our unity will be established Focused on one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Revelation is not a hope. Revelation is a guarantee. Okay? Jesus is coming back, and he is going to make peace permanently. In fact, there's a tree in heaven, in the new city, called the tree of life. And it has leaves. And those leaves, the Bible says, are for the healing of the nations. You see, all of this division has created a lot of pain. There is real damage that has been done through racism and oppression. You know, I don't know if you know much about the struggle between the Japanese and the Koreans and how Japan invaded Korea and how how they dominated Korea and how they oppressed the people of Korea. And, you know, one of the largest uh, percentage of, of Presbyterians in any nation is the nation of South Korea. Wonderful Christians in Korea. But, you know, they have some problems in the way they feel about the Japanese. And the Japanese have problems in the way they feel about the Koreans. But in heaven... In the new city, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, there's some leaves that are going to heal the hurt of the Koreans. You know, there are some wonderful Tutsi Christians and Hutu Christians in the nation of Rwanda. And when they enter the new Jerusalem, there's some leaves for the healing. And these, these are horrible Stories of genocide and oppression. And we have those stories here in America in terms of our history of slavery and segregation and uh, Jim Crow and lynching and discrimination. There's some leaves for the healing of the nations. That's part of the gospel. That tree was won for us through the blood of Christ. And it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that when Christ died on the cross, he took all the Gentiles and the Jews and he made one new man out of the two in his body, thus making peace. At the cross of Christ, not only did we find our justification provided for, we found our reconciliation provided for. So this is a great biblical word, reconciliation. And and when you come into Jesus Christ, 
you come into the victory of the cross. In other words, reconciliation has been already accomplished through the death of Christ. We're, we're all unified already in the image of God. Amen? Now, by the way, one of the things you must understand historically, that people used racism to deny the image of God in other people. Uh, during the time of slavery, white folks said, black people can't really be human. They, that was a denial of the image of God. That, that is as gross a hatred as you can imagine. But, you know, not only are we unified in the image of God in the way we're... So that means every human being has innate dignity. Why would we treat people in nursing homes that are fed through tubes in their stomach and are comatose, why would we treat that kind of thing with dignity? You say, well, that's my grandmother. So what? She's taking up space. She, she's taking up resources. And because she's created in the image of God, that's why. Why do we fight for life? Why, why do we even get upset about abortion? Because human beings are created in the image of God. And they have innate dignity. And you don't have a right to take another person's life unless the Lord gives authority that right. Whew. But not only are we one because of the image of God, but now in Christ Jesus, those who are far away have been brought near through his blood. So we are fellow citizens, fellow members of the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 2 has really been the theme verse for our church at New City. Chapter 2, 11 through 18. Those verses are so powerful in describing the reconciliation that Christ has achieved. Okay? So whether or not there's been hatred in your heart for other people, or whether or not there's been bitterness between your group and some other group, I'm telling you the good news is Christ has already achieved reconciliation. That's the ministry of reconciliation. That's the message of reconciliation which God has given to us that we are to preach and proclaim and to live. Now here's the question. If in the book of Revelation we come back to unity around the throne, if the picture, the promise, the guarantee of unity is ahead of us, how come we're not living it out here? You know, over 95% of uh, Protestant churches in America are only of one racial group, one ethnic group. Overwhelmingly, our testimony to the world is that Jesus does not make us one. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King used to say that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. You know, I, I was an Army Reserve chaplain for 32 years, and the Army was listed as one of the most successful institutions in America in terms of racial integration. Why is the Army better than the church? That's a little whack, don't you think? Now, that's not really spiritual or emotional unity. There's plenty of racism in the army. 
But institutionally, they have worked at it. But in the church, we have not. We have allowed our own cultural captivity to keep us from really reaching out to to other people. The, The scriptures teach us that in Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. And in Colossians, it says there's not barbarian or Scythian. If you even know what a Scythian is, you know. One day, one might show up in church. (laughs) Oh, you're a Scythian. Actually, Paul puts that in there because the Scythians were really bad people in the Roman Empire. They were a warrior class. And uh, the Romans, in fact, were kind of terrified of them because they had decimated some Roman legions. And the idea of a Scythian being one with us was kind of like, are you kidding? But that's, that's the power of the gospel, that unity that Christ has achieved for us. Now, having said all that, does that mean that we ought to take other people's cultures and ethnic distinctives seriously? Or should the Christian response be, I don't see color. What do you think? Give me some help here. We should take it serious. Well, I kind of set you up. You know, when I said serious, you know, it's like, what's the right answer? You know, Christians, we struggle with this. Because we don't really always know what to do with culture and our Christianity. Either we have to, in a sense, say it's not important and we're going to deny it. Or we make it too important and we separate. And so there's a real wrestle with this. There's a struggle with this. What's the biblical answer? And the biblical strategy for cross-cultural ministry is found here in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 19. And that's where the Apostle Paul tells us the strategy of how to reach across cultures And this is what he says. Though I am free from all men, I don't consider myself a slave to anybody. I become a slave on purpose, by choice, to all men in order that I might by all means win some. To the Jew, I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those without the law, I became like one without the law, though I myself am under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became like one who is weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men in order that I might by all means win some. Now, we, we get that. By the way, what time am I working on? 10.07? Um, and I quit at what, 10.15? Um, we get that when we send out missionaries. When Joan and I went to Kenya, the first thing we did was we uh, signed up for Swahili school. 
And uh, so we took a three-month course in Swahili, which means we know how to buy bananas, uh, <laughs> essentially. And, but I was not, not good enough to preach in it. But the Kenyans were so nice to us. You know, if we said hello in, you know, in, in Swahili, it was, oh, you know our language, you know. So they're great liars, but uh, uh, they're very kind to us. But trying just to learn somebody else's language is a sign of respect. And so we understand that if you're a missionary, you go to a foreign country, you are expected in that first year, try to learn the language, try to learn the culture, uh, try to fit in among the people. You don't go there as a, 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 to set up an American colony. You, you go there to be part of the people so that you might, it, the purpose of it all is to win people to Jesus. Now, what we do as churches, we have our 95% of Protestant churches just one group, black people, white people, whatever. As I was growing up, there were still a lot of ethnic churches uh, where I lived. There was the German Baptist Church and and they actually spoke German. And, and, you know, if you went to Chicago, you might have gone to Salem Church, and it was a Norwegian church. And the stained glass windows had Norwegian verses written on them. They later became a Puerto Rican church. And I don't, you know, I'm, I don't know how that, you know, that cultural was, bam! Well, in America, we say if you go to a foreign country, you learn their culture to fit in. But here in America, even if the neighborhood around us changes and all of a sudden we're surrounded by all these different kind of folk, if you come into our church, you become like us. In the South, we had, in fact, the very building our church is in uh, was a white congregation that was very racist. They did not want black people in the building. And uh, there are some certain stories about that church that were just really chilling. You know, they saw black kids playing on their playground. They tore the playground down and paved it uh, so they wouldn't come on the property. They, they supported missionaries. And a missionary from Haiti, where there are a lot of black people, uh, this white missionary called them and he said, Hey, I'm in town. You support us. Can I come by the church? They said, Oh, that'd be great. He said, I'm bringing a Haitian pastor with me. And uh, they said, is he black? They said, yeah, don't come. And God judged that church. And finally, they gave us their building. They sold it to us. And we filled it with as many black people as we could. (laughs) But it's just almost crazy how our cultural captivity has kept us from... And so... A lot of white churches in the South got to the point where they said, well, you know, that's wrong. So let's say to the black people and other people, you're welcome. And I've had pastors say, we did that, and they don't come. Why is that? One day, Joan and I were in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, we were asked to come to this white church that was surrounded by a black community, and it was a very large church, and uh, they were, but the white population in that church was shrinking and instead of sitting in the 1400 seat auditorium they had to meet in the gym just so they didn't feel uh, embarrassed about how small their church was getting and so they wanted us to come in and talk to them how can we reach black people to start coming into the church really good question very sincere earnest but one of the officers looked at us and he said 
Here's my question. How can we get black people to come without changing anything about ourselves? Is that possible? And I just started laughing. I said, no. And, uh, but it was such an honest, sincere question. He, and here, here's the point I'm trying to make. Today, we need to apply this same strategy to us as a whole congregation. How can we become slaves to other people in their cultural context so we might win them? Remember yesterday I told you I've come to talk about making church harder? So if I tell you what I've come by today to tell you is you need to become a slave culturally to other people in order to win them to Christ. That's pretty easy, isn't it? This is one of the hardest, most difficult things you will ever be called upon to do because it's going to make you recognize how tied you are to your own comfort. You know, you talk about a comfort level. This has everything to do with everything. (laughs) It has to do with the kind of folks you're going to meet and the kind of music you're going to sing. And, And Joan's going to talk to you a little bit more about worship in some of the implications of that, that we've had to work through uh, at New City. And, and, and it's a challenge. It's not, I don't think it's ever a place that necessarily you've arrived, but it is a constant process, a constant challenge. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul? This is one of the great jokes of the New Testament. God takes an extreme Jew. Paul says, I'm a Pharisee. That's what he was. He would not eat with Gentiles. He hated Jesus. He looked upon people according to the flesh. And he looked on Christ that way until Jesus saved him. And what does God do? He calls him as a missionary to the Gentiles. For the rest of his life, he's got to eat with Gentiles. For the rest of his life, he is crossing that cultural boundary I can't imagine how difficult it was. And yet he was so passionate about what it meant to live out reconciliation. And because of that slavery, you Gentiles are included. If it wasn't for that incredible sacrifice, we would never, our forefathers would never have heard the gospel. And there are people in this community that will never hear the gospel until you become their slave. I know I've not come to give you something simple. I've come to tell you that, that the gospel requires a cost. Who does this sound like? Jesus. If anybody would come after me, Let him take up his cross and follow me. If you would save your life, what do you have to do? Lose it. Simple, right? And it won't happen without the grace of God. And here I've got the good news. I'll just end with this before we go into questions. 
The grace of God has power to do what you humanly cannot do. You know, you will be at your wit's end. You will be, people will get on your last nerve. You, You will not know what to do. But here's the wonderful thing about the Lord. God is always willing to hear you cry out for wisdom, to cry out for help, to cry out for love, to cry out for power, to do what you cannot do. That's the way it's supposed to happen. Christianity is not supposed to be something that you can do naturally and easily uh, without any challenges. There's a cross in it. And I'll tell you, it's wonderful to live it. Because everybody who comes into a cross-cultural church gives up something, but we all gain. You're going to gain stuff that you never had in your life. And yes, there will be times when you say, oh, I'm, I'm giving up. And I, I, don't, I don't like it. But then you realize, wow, what I've gained is so much more. Okay. So I'll just end there. And Willie, can I have questions? Thank you, Randy. Um, Randy shared with us about unity. Uh, Randy said that there was something, there, there are some leaves that's good, that's good for the healing of the nation. So, Randy, I have a question I really dig. I'm, I'm with you. This unity, I, I believe in the reconciliation of the cross. Uh, I, my question is, what are some of the practical things that we can do? What are some of the practical things that we can do for, to reach our community or what are some of the things that you guys did? I know you said you learned the language, you learned Swahili, but we're in a place where we all speak English. So what are some of the practical things that we may be able to do to reach others? Yeah, well, f- first of all, it, I think you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you start seeing things culturally. Your own culture and what's different about the culture of other folk. Um, so just the, the concept of vision, of cultural understanding is important. And that, that can be a lifelong thing. Um, you know, uh, how many of you have ever been to a black church? I know you have. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay, quite a few of you. That's a cultural experience. And uh, one of the things that, that you need to do is understand, begin to understand some of that culture. Uh, one of the things you can do is often invite a, a black church to come. Black churches like to visit yes. and to have their choir come and their pastor preach. If he's preaching the gospel, you know, to have that kind of a, a joint service and to begin to experience some of the faith that you're going to see in black folk. That's, that's an exciting thing. Um, you know, having... Pastor Willie here is a great addition to your church. And one of the things that's important is that both of these brothers, Pastor David as well, get to know some of the black pastors in this community. Because one of the things we were concerned about here is that if we win black people to Christ and they come into our church, sometimes they are going to suffer um, anger from other black folk. You know, they're going to say, why are you in that white church? 
And you, you got to understand that one of the great cultural values in the black community is solidarity. Uh, solidarity comes about in the black community because of American racism. Black folks has to stick together. And so if all of a sudden, wait a minute, you're, 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 are you trying to forget you're black? Are you trying to deny who you are? Are, are you a sellout? Are you, are you just trying to get those white people money? Is that what this is about? And so maintaining that integrity is so important. And part of that happens by showing yourself that, no, no, we're not trying to escape the black community. We're trying to love it. And so helping your church to be partners with some black folks, black churches, and, and express that kind of love, that's an important thing to do. And that's why I told you I joined that group called the Black Ministers Union, because I very much did not want the black folk in my church to be cut off from the rest of the black community. And, you know, um, that kind of, of uh, criticism, even from members of your own family, is hurtful. Some of you white folks may have to, to go through that. Well, you got, you got those kind of people coming to your church. And... Uh, you know, we can't be around them. And you'll see that sometimes in, within your own family or, or your own uh, friends. There's a price to be paid even today uh, for this kind of thing. So that's one particular step uh, you can make. At New City, uh, to that end, we, we celebrate Black History Month. We do that for the benefit of the white folk as well as the black folk. And we're, we're, every year that we do it, there's always some white, dear, mean, well-meaning white person. Why do we do that? We're here about Christ. We don't want to talk about any, you know, why don't we have white people month? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And you go, well, the reality is most of the white church, and we spend a lot of time in seminary learning church history. It's amazing how little we have ever been told that there were any black uh, preachers or theologians. We know hardly anything about the work of God in the black community because all our training has been very selective culturally. And I can remember when I first went to seminary, some of my professors were saying, black theology, there's just theology. But then I went into their office, and on, right behind them was Scottish theology. <laughs> and of course, as Presbyterians, we know that's the highest level of <laughs> theology you can get. But it, would, it never crossed their mind how inconsistent that was. So does that help at all? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, wink. Not to do? Wow. question don't, was, what are some, some things that we should not do becoming a diverse church? Don't sin. <laughs> okay, boy, that's a very good question, and I, I don't think I, I came prepared to answer it. Um, but uh, I would say, one is, do not, do not simply accept racism when you see it. 
either as individuals or as a whole church. Every, and by the way, racism is a reality. Uh, it, even though I said race, races were uh, invented uh, to create privilege and supremacy, uh, the reality is we all know there are, is such a thing as racism. And, there, and it's, it's hatred. And, and, it's, and it's a sense of superiority over people. And sometimes we put up with it. I don't know how many of you have been in a place where people start telling racial jokes or they use racial epithets, and we keep silent. And you are now in a community where you can no longer tolerate that stuff. You know, and, and here's a question to ask. You know, if you're in a context and you're hearing this kind of discussion, think about what if Pastor Willie was standing right behind me and he saw this, how would it make him feel? to hear this kind of language. What, what happens in a cross-cultural church is you become extremely loyal to each other. You, you love each other. You care about each other. And you say, no, we're, we're not going to tolerate that kind of stuff. That if, if we're Christians, we have to think Christian. We have to talk Christian. We have to, we have to show it. So don't tolerate that kind of stuff. Don't, don't say, oh, well, you know, that, that's the way they've always thought and our whole denomination, by the way, is going through this right now. Over the last two or three years in General Assembly, we have been dealing with the issue of our racist past as a denomination. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and here's some of the things I've been told. Well, you know, he's old and that, that, he comes from a different generation, so you need to let that go. I'm sorry. That's not the way we handle any other sin. You, you speak the truth in love. It's not that a racist can't be forgiven. Hallelujah. Racism's just another sin. Christ died for it. God can deliver people from it. But you don't tolerate it. So that's one of the things. Um, I don't know, Joan, you got any answers to that question? How do we come across um, the many barriers we may face without being seen as patronizing? Yes, and I do want to say that there is a middle-class culture, and there is a culture of poverty, and sometimes what people do is they inject racial explanations for those, and you need to be able to differentiate that. Uh, poor white folks have an entrenched culture of poverty. It has nothing to do with race. Uh, and so when you inject, you know, racism into that, it, it's very damaging. Uh, to ignore those cultural differences will cause you trouble. Uh, we, as middle class folk, we think that everybody thinks like us, and they don't. And in order for them to become middle class, which, by the way, is not a bad thing to become economically. Poor people, you know, I hope they all become middle class economically. But the danger is when you just simply assume 
that poor people are just like us, except they're lazy. You know, all of a sudden, you, you have completely missed all the dynamics that create a culture of poverty. Why do people, you know, what's the difference between aspirational poverty and generational poverty? Aspirational poverty is the poverty of the immigrant. Why can he get on the shore and within 20 years he owns a business? And why do people who've lived in this country for hundreds of years keep having, getting pregnant in, in, as teenagers, not finishing high school, going on welfare, living in slums, you know, one generation after another? Those are distinct kinds of poverty. And when you live in generational poverty, marriage is destroyed, aspiration is destroyed, you live on a survival basis, you live on a hustle basis, all kinds of problems are there. That value system has to be changed. And it can be changed through discipleship in the church. So, uh, that, but that's another lecture about power. We'll take uh, one last question, Matt. No. Oh, what a! We want to. Uh, how do how do we live together and show love and unity, regardless of our political parties? Yes, and I think that that is one of those things that goes. What should we not do? You should not assume that your political persuasion is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. All right. Uh, one time, I got into a pretty fierce argument with a Presbyterian elder who wanted me to vote Republican. And this was uh, before the national election, and he said, you're going to vote for the Republican candidate, right? And, you know, I don't like telling anybody who I'm going to vote for. And so I said, I, I might not because of these things. And he became furious at me. And he said, you know, aren't you a Republican? And I said, no, I'm a Christian. Now, about 20 years later, he got in touch with me and he said, you were right. That is the way we are to think. Sometimes, absolutely, I would vote for a Republican. No problem. Sometimes, I might vote for a Democrat. No problem. But I base my decision on where I think that candidate or party stands on what I call Christian values. But when you become a political ideologue, you're a partisan, and you assume that everybody should think like you, and you judge other people on that basis, you are dividing the body of Christ. And we were just talking about this, uh, was it last night, about people wearing things to church. Uh, we had, uh, when Obama was running for office, you know, we have a praise team of singers and we, we, are, we are really pursue black culture in our worship. And one of our young men, a really great singer, he came to church and he had a T-shirt on and had Obama's portrait on the front of the shirt. And he's on the praise team and he's singing. And this is right during the election, you know. Now, he was very proud as a, as a, a young black man that a black man was possibly going to be president. But one of our African-American elders came up to him and said, son, you need to go home and change that shirt. 
Because church is not about endorsing your politician. I had to come up to a white guy who was wearing um, libertarian Rand Paul. Big Rand, I mean, it was a big butt. And this, this was right when a bunch of uh, uh, discussion was about Rand Paul's, uh, he had written some articles that seemed to be racist. And this man was proud to be a libertarian, and he wanted to wear his button to church. And I said, do you know there will be some people in church today who are offended by that button? You know, they're here to worship, and they'll be thinking about your button. And he immediately took it off. He said, oh, my goodness, I never thought of that. I don't want that to happen. God bless him. I, you know, if that's his political conviction, I'm not going to tell him as his pastor, you're wrong to think that. But I can tell him, do not bring that division into the church. Amen. And you need to be careful on social media about those kinds of things. If you blast other people and make assumptions, and a lot of, a lot of political decision is based on assumptions of the other group. Boy, you can, you can hurt your brothers and sisters in Christ. So thanks for the question. Um, after the last election cycle, when our current president was elected, that, that created a huge issue in our very diverse church. And um, a lot of it went on on social media for a while. And uh, finally, our pastor, it, it, with a lot of wisdom, decided that what we needed to do was to come together on a Wednesday night and have dinner together and then just talk it through. And so we did it in a kind of a panel format. We had a panel of um, the different groups represented in our church. We had young African-American African men. We had a Latino male, a Latino female, a white woman, a black, uh, white man. As many as people as we could find that were willing to do this on a short notice. And they took questions from the floor. And a lot of those questions were really hard and really harsh. Um, but what happened was we got through that and we actually were, had to listen to each other. <laughs> and I think that was the most valuable thing about that night. And nothing was resolved. You know, the people that had voted for Trump were still thought they were right. People that thought they were wrong for voting for Trump still thought they were right. But what we learned was we can listen to each other. We can disagree. We could say really hard things to each other. But at the end of the day, Jesus is what unites us. And um, so that was a very valuable experience for our congregation. And, you know, so it's something that, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's often messy. It often goes unresolved, which I think a lot of us can't handle. <laughs> you know, we want to convince and coerce people. Think like me, think like me. But what we've had to learn is, you know, we're sitting in a pew with somebody I absolutely disagree with on these issues. But, you know, I, you know he's my brother in, in Christ, so. We're going we're gonna to close in prayer, and then we'll take a 15-minute break. Five-minute break. Five-minute break. We'll close in prayer. Five-minute break. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you. God, we praise you. God, thanks that we've heard. Uh, God, we must admit these things are challenging. But, Father, we know that through you we're able to do above all these things, God, that we're able to conquer these things through, through the grace that has been afforded to us. So, Father, we pray now 
that even this moment, as we think on these things, God, that you would guide our hearts, guide our minds, and cause us, God, to realize that you are what we need. And God, even if we may think these things are too great for us or too challenging, God, you have already given us the victory. Let us receive what you've given us and let us walk in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.